0: final episode of my west virginia mine wars mini-series. now that we have discussed the second west virginia mine war from a narrative perspective it's time to analyze it first it's important to note that there were several key causes of the second of the west virginia mine wars in part, the war resulted from the partial, incomplete unionization of the mines in the state of West Virginia. On November 1, 1919, the United Mine Workers Mines in West Virginia went on strike, but the mines that were not unionized continued to operate, undercutting the efficacy of the strike. Then, on March 20, 1920, Woodrow Wilson awarded a 34% increase to the wages paid for union tonnage and a 20% increase to the wages paid for union day laborers. This raise did not extend to non union Mines like those in Mingo and Logan counties. These non union mines also had no check weighmen. Despite the law requiring all mines to have check weighmen, they were only present at union mines. Also, these non-Union miners worked nine-hour days or longer, unlike Union miners who only worked eight-hour days. Consequently, it comes as little surprise that these non-Union miners would eventually seek to join the Union. Also, the quality of life for miners had hardly been improved by the one step forward, two steps back of the first West Virginia mine war being followed by the First World War's boon of patriotism that marked all dissidents and dissenters as disloyal and conflated coalitions with communists. Living costs were 143% higher than they had been in 1913, and miners' wages had not risen to match this increase. The miners lived in squalid and isolated mining towns. Their employers were their landlords, and the local police were on the company payroll. To lose one's job was to lose one's home, and depending on the reason one was fired, to wind up on the wrong side of the local police force, who miners sometimes referred to as gun thugs. Also, as miners worked for their landlords, rent and utilities often came straight out of their paychecks, along with numerous other fees. In Mingo, in 1920, workers were charged about $2 per room per month for rent and about $0.40 per light bulb per month for electric, and they were charged a doctor fee of a dollar per month for single men and $2 per month for married men. On top of this, miners also had to buy their own mining equipment, like blasting powder, dynamite, shot paper, and tools, at the company-owned store. This company-owned store was often the only place to buy food and other goods, and these goods were often overpriced, particularly when miners were paid in scrip, a currency with very little value in company towns and no value whatsoever outside of these towns. But miners' reasons for revolting ran deeper than the mere dissatisfaction with their wages and living conditions. They endured severe abuses and restrictions under the mine guard system. They were sometimes forbidden from visiting with their neighbors to prevent any union activity. If they tried to unionize, they were immediately fired and evicted under the system of Yellow Dog Contracts. They were often subjected to evictions, beatings, and even murders for speaking out against the system. The baldwin Fells agents acted as mine guards and a privately owned police force, stripping miners of their constitutional rights. When martial law was declared during these strikes, miners could expect even greater constitutional abuses. For example, under martial law, it was illegal for two or more miners to congregate. So when five United Mine Workers international representatives gathered to distribute food, clothing, and medical supplies to thousands of miners in the Tug River area, they were all arrested, depriving miners of these much needed supplies and forcing them to starve. Despite the abuses and tyranny of martial law, it never managed to fully restore order because this order was predicated on the continued exploitation of the miners, not any real change or compromise. Simply put, peace did not equate to justice, so peace did not last. Time and again, the miners were shown that political change was simply not a realistic option. First, they struggled to form a coherent political agenda due to the diverse and isolated nature of the mining towns. They had no existing political structures to draw from, and many residents of mining towns were immigrants who had not yet become naturalized citizens or gained the right to vote. Also, mine operators often interfered with elections, with election results figured up and given out in advance as to what the county will do, particularly in southern counties or when important offices like sheriff were involved. Incidentally, this was how Sheriff Don Chaffin of Logan County was elected. In that sense, the Battle of Madawan and the martyrization of Sid Hatfield came as the final straws breaking the backs of the miners' resolve for a peaceful resolution. For years, union efforts had been dimied not just by the heavy-handed tactics of the baldwin feltz operatives, but also by the intimidating shadow the detective agency cast. The deaths of seven Phelps agents at the Battle of Matawan shattered the air of invincibility and encouraged miners to fight back. Then, the miners' hero from this battle, Sid Hatfield, was murdered in broad daylight on the steps of a courthouse, and justice was never served. The miners held a meeting to discuss the injustice and all the other abuses they had endured. Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney aired their grievances. Frank Ingham, a black miner who had been beaten and left for dead in McDowell County, told his story. Mother Jones also spoke, and beautiful Sally Chambers, young widow of Ed Chambers, described how her husband and Sid Hatfield were murdered before her eyes just a week before. Many other miners told the stories of their own evictions, beatings, and abuses. The miners were understandably enraged, and when the governor refused their final pleas, they began to reach for their rifles, as they could see no possibility of help from any official source. The immediate effects of this radicalization were grim. The final death toll for the Battle of Blair Mountain is unknown, but estimates range from under 20 to over 100, though many contend this number seems far lower than would be realistic, given the amount of people involved in the fight and the fact that an estimated 1 million rounds were fired. Bill Blizzard, a leader from this battle, stated, all estimates must remain elastic, as eyewitnesses who were not participants were not welcome, so there was never really an official count also immediately following the battle governor morgan ordered numerous arrests bringing more than 100 indictments for treason and murder against over 500 miners no charges were ever filed against sheriff don chaffin or his men for their part in this violence fortunately for the miners most of the charges were difficult to prove and many were ultimately freed Wes Harris argues that this showed that the miners really won the Battle of Blair Mountain, as few convictions occurred and no miners were hung. However, it was still a huge blow to the United Mine Workers Union, as their West Virginia treasury was practically emptied by all the legal fees associated with providing a defense for the miners. The West Virginia Mine Wars were not a total loss, however. One major effect of the Battle of Blair Mountain was that it gave the miners of West Virginia a voice, and it gave them a hero in Bill Blizzard. Blizzard went on to become the vice president of District 17 and remained active in the United Mine Workers of America Union for a long time. He also lobbied on behalf of the miners in the West Virginia legislature until 1955. The media's representation of the miners varied greatly after the West Virginia Mine Wars. While some reporters waxed poetic about their bravery in the face of injustice, others scolded them at length for their violence. They were often compared to communists, with some reporters referring to them as Bolsheviks. Charles Frederick Carter argued that the entire push for the unionization of the mines in West Virginia, and the entirety of both West Virginia Mine Wars, was actually a result of a major conspiracy. He argued that 23 years of arson, assault, and assassination in West Virginia was caused by a conspiracy between the United Mine Workers of America and coal operators in Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and western Pennsylvania to raise the price of coal and reduce the competition from non-union mines in West Virginia. This theory actually made it all the way to the West Virginia Supreme Court, but the United States Circuit Court in Chicago reversed West Virginia's decision and found that no such conspiracy had ever existed. Other reporters supported the Union and the striking miners, making efforts to humanize these miners in the eyes of the public. Elvis Searles argued that though West Virginia coal operators often viewed the miners as animals, and then the public has often lost sight of it, the coal miner is a man, a human being, just like the rest of us. Searles argued that though the miners did behave violently during the West Virginia mine wars, their violent actions were understandable when viewed in the full context of the oppression they faced. Also, Searles noted that though people on the other side of the West Virginia Mine Wars, like mine guards and Baldwin Feltz agents, also behaved violently, their actions were often downplayed to the public, and they were never brought to justice, nor did they face any consequences. There were also some less immediate effects of the West Virginia Mine Wars, in part due to the lack of funding for United Mine Workers of America as a result of paying the legal fees for many miners who were arrested after the Battle of Blair Mountain. Union membership fell throughout the 1920s and did not pick back up until the 1930s, when President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal endeavored to repair the nation's economy with a series of legislative acts. The Wagner Act of 1935 granted workers the legal right to organize labor unions, empowering and revitalizing the unions. Practically overnight, the mines and coal fields of West Virginia unionized. The United Mine Workers of America became one of the American Federation of Labor's largest unions. Also, the miners were able to secure greater safety standards in the long run. Mining is still a dangerous industry, but not near as bad as it used to be. The United States eventually adopted important safety regulations for miners, even creating the Mine Safety and Health Administration to ensure higher standards and better protections for workers in this dangerous field. The federal government also created laws providing for the compensation of people who were injured at work in hazardous industries, including coal mining. Finally, perhaps the most significant effect of the West Virginia Mine Wars was that they gave miners a voice. They demonstrated the sheer power of grassroots organization. The working class had banded together to say simply that enough was enough, and there is power in that legacy. But the struggle is far from over. The United Mine Workers of America went on to fight coal operators across a variety of battlefields, including a strike in Colorado where baldwin felts agents were again brought out to put an end to the strike, and a strike in 1989 in Virginia where police intervened on the coal operator's side. There can be no doubt that our labor laws must be changed if workers are to secure a better life. Also, despite newer safety regulations, mining is still incredibly dangerous. Though there are fewer accidents, black lung remains a serious disease that often leads to a slow, painful death, and those who fall victim to this disease can rarely afford to receive treatment for it with the minimal compensation they are granted. Modern unions have also lost a great deal of the power they once held. There are still a variety of disadvantages that inevitably accompany a dependency on coal, and how long these disadvantages will be accepted remains to be seen. In part, this continued abuse and loss of power of unions can be attributed to the suppression of the legacy of the West Virginia Mine Wars. These historical events are often neglected on the national stage. For decades, this history was actively suppressed, even in state history books. Luckily, Charles Anson's 1940 dissertation on the West Virginia labor movement shed some light on the West Virginia Mine Wars. It was then followed by works from other local historians, like James Green and Lon Savage, and a film about the Battle of Matawan, made by John Sales, and the creation of the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. However, even though it's an important story, a part of American history that more people need to know about, the events of the West Virginia Mine Wars have yet to be brought to national attention. It is imperative that this legacy be shared with the nation as a whole, and the working class, labor movement, and union organizers in particular. That's why I felt it was important to make a podcast and share this story. It has the potential to inspire the modern labor movement, and in some cases, it already has. On February 22, 2020, 20,000 public school teachers and 13,000 school support staff across all 55 counties of West Virginia went on strike. They demanded higher wages as West Virginia ranked 48th in the United States for teachers' salaries. They received the support of their communities by ensuring that students who depended on free and reduced lunch programs would still be fed throughout the strike. The strike ended successfully on March 6, 2020, but not before inspiring similar strikes across Colorado, Oklahoma, Arizona, and Kentucky. Many of those interviewed about the strike cited the West Virginia Mine Wars as an inspiration for the modern movement, and many striking teachers wore red bandanas around their necks, echoing the redneck army of the 1920s. If the legacy of the Battle of Blair Mountain could inspire teachers across West Virginia to go on strike for higher wages, one can only imagine the power that this narrative would have if these historic events were brought to the public attention. In that sense, knowledge is power, and when it comes to efforts to improve the conditions for the working class, knowledge of the past is power to change the future.